Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Do you know what that certified organic label on your food really means? Learn all about that label and why organic is worth it at stonyfield.com. We're proud to be making organic yogurt and honored to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With the 2012 elections in the history books, what's next for U.S. environmental policy and the prospects for a comprehensive plan to address the threat of global warming? Well, I think the president certainly recognizes that action on climate change is one of the big unfinished items uh, on his agenda from the first term and that he'll try to move that forward. But can the president get bipartisan buy-in? Also, sprouting up in cities from Boston to Beijing, a low-cost, low-emission solution to urban gridlock, public bike share programs. Bike sharing is a rocket ship. If you think about transit investment, it's the best bang for the buck by a factor of 100. And then if you think about the public health aspects, I don't know of many other modes that are as much of a magic bullet as cycling is. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On November 6th, after a marathon of rancorous campaigning, Americans voted to give President Obama four more years to deliver on the hopes that swept him to power in 2008. But despite all our differences, most of us share certain hopes for America's future. We want our kids to grow up in a country where they have access to the best schools and the best teachers. A country that lives up to its legacy as the global leader in technology and discovery and innovation with all the good jobs and new businesses that follow. We want our children to live in America that isn't burdened by debt, that isn't weakened by inequality, that isn't threatened by the destructive power of a warming planet. That warming planet is one of the most profound challenges that faces the president in his second term. We have two informed observers to discuss what the elections might mean for that and other environmental issues. Conserve America's Vice President for Global and Political Affairs, Dave Jenkins. Hello, Dave. Hi, how are you doing? And on Skype, also from Washington, is the Natural Resources Defense Council's Director of Climate and Clean Air Program, Dan Lashoff. Hi there, Dan. Hey, Steve. Uh, Dave Jenkins, millions of dollars from corporate sources, particularly the fossil fuel interests, were spent over this past election cycle. But at the end of the day, pretty much the status quo. What's the lesson here, do you think? I think the lesson is that uh, all that money poured into um, the Republican side, and yet you know the message that they were putting out on television didn't reflect the kind of forward-thinking, taking care of future generations, being responsible, uh, these values that most people define as conservative. They were more, you know, all in, you know, sort of live for the day, drill here, uh, you know, drill baby drill, talking about a war on coal when, you know, people know that the, the reason coal is being displaced is because of natural gas and the marketplace, far more so than, than regulation. You look at the constituencies. You want to you appeal to young people. You want to appeal to minorities. You want to build a, a winning coalition the way Reagan did back in the 80s. And the polarizing rhetoric and everything that really was sort of enhanced simply with all that uh, industrial and corporate money. No matter how much you broadcast it on TV, if it's not a message that resonates with the American public, 
uh, you're not going to get through. My hope is that our party will uh, be skeptical of the agenda and the items that special interests put forward and try to take a step back and think about it in the context of the best interest of the nation as a whole. Uh, Dan Lashoff, uh, what's the lesson here? All that money for the election and we're really still at the status quo. Well, I think we're even better off than the status quo in terms of the makeup of the Senate. And when all is said and done, I think it will turn out that the fossil fuel industry spent $500 million trying to defeat uh, people who had the temerity to suggest that we need to invest in renewable energy and deal with climate change. And and they lost in uh, every case. So we have coming to the Senate some real champions such as uh, Martin Heinrich in New Mexico and Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, Tim Kaine, the coal industry spent millions of dollars trying to defeat him in Virginia, and they failed. Uh, Angus King, a strong independent from Maine, who will, uh, you know, is a, a champion of dealing with climate change. So ultimately, the lesson is uh, money can't buy you love if what you're trying to sell is a fossil fueled future that is uh, bad for the country. Let's just look for a moment at the ballot initiatives. You know, when people feel that they have to go around their legislatures, when they're really frustrated and the legislature is blocking things, they, they go to the ballot initiative. We saw that on issues like gay marriage and marijuana, these initiatives won, but most of the environmental measures uh, went nowhere. Uh, what happened with the labeling of genetically modified organisms in California uh, or Michigan's uh, renewable fuel standard? Well, on the Michigan standard, the argument that the opposition put in on Michigan wasn't about the substance. It was an argument that this shouldn't be done through a constitutional amendment. And I think that there, so the, the, the answer there is that the mechanism was the wrong mechanism for moving renewable energy forward. Uh, the public strongly supports moving renewable energy forward. And, and so that's, that's a bit of an anomaly. And uh, in California, I think that may be, you know, one of the few examples where money did really influence the outcome. The uh, big ag interest put millions of dollars into defeating that proposition. And uh, propositions are hard to win. There's a, you know, kind of strong bias overall for people to vote no. And uh, when you have a lopsided investment of money, uh, it's very hard to prevail. Dave Jenkins? Yeah, well, I I agree with uh, what Dan said. But I would also add, though, that if you if you look a little deeper and you look at ballot initiatives for uh, open space and parks, and those are overwhelmingly supported uh, by people of every political stripe, and I think that goes to a basic uh, quality of life uh, desired by folks and uh, that everybody agrees that we need to be responsible when it comes to uh, land stewardship. So there was no real negative wave or anything like that with respect to environmental ballot initiatives. I don't think there were any of these things uh, really lost on their merit. I want to ask you both about uh, the prospects now for the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, Dave Jenkins, do you think this is uh, a good thing for the president to block, and do you think he has the political capital to do so if he wants to? When you've got more, a little bit more conventional type of oil reserves uh, uh, up in North Dakota and, and places like that, to me it doesn't make a ton of sense for us to bring that carbon-intensive fuel here and have a pipeline all the way to the Gulf of Mexico where there's decent odds that that wouldn't even that product wouldn't even be sold to Americans it would it would just be shipped over to China so i hope uh, the state department and the president you know look at it carefully and consider all the impacts and uh, and make an informed decision but i i don't think congress uh, would be quite as in a position to block his action as it was before one he's not standing for reelection again and two uh, he's got uh, two more extra democrat votes in the senate 
Uh, Dan Lashoff? Uh, so on the Keystone XL pipeline, the administration needs to complete the environmental review process that they've started. We think that it's very clear that the conclusion of that should be to reject the pipeline is not in our national interest. Uh, it is a pipeline that would bring one of the dirtiest sources of fossil fuels. Then the president should stick with his focus of uh, improving fuel efficiency, supporting renewables, and moving the country towards a clean energy economy, as, as he has talked about. How much do you think that this huge federal deficit is going to affect uh, science and research funding going forward now? Dan Lashoff? Well, I think the deficit's a big problem, and how the fiscal cliff is addressed is going to impact both science research and energy research and uh, investments in environmental protection and infrastructure, as well as I think, you know, in the aftermath of Sandy, uh, there are clear needs to invest in preparing for the effects of climate change that we can no longer address. So we certainly think that that needs to be solved in a way that has a balance between raising revenue and that the uh, the spending cuts have to be carefully targeted and should be things like cutting fossil fuel subsidies. So uh, whether that's solved in a bipartisan way, I think will set a tone for how policy is addressed throughout the second term. Dave Jenkins, uh, funding for science and research? The funding, um, it needs to be reduced in a balanced way across the different areas. And uh, what we saw in the last Congress was an effort by some to target things like the Endangered Species Act and target uh, clean energy and land and water conservation fund and things like that. that um, uh, disproportionately, as, as part of sort of an, an ideological sort of libertarian type agenda. And that's not in the nation's best interest. If you've got to really tighten your belt and you've got to take you know, serious cuts, what you want to do is do it in a balanced way. You, you can't uh, starve this important area of where our country needs to go forward. Uh, Superstorm Sandy uh, reminds us that uh, climate disruption is on a track to wreck our civilization. Uh, the president, when the election was over, talked about you know, wanting to leave a safe planet for the, the next uh, generations, but the present path of the White House would not do that, many scientists say. Do you think Obama is going to be able to reach down and find this sort of intestinal fortitude that allowed him to plow ahead with the health care measures uh, in the face of the incredibly stiff opposition that dealing with climate change? Dave Jenkins? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we really fault the President Obama for is that when there was an opportunity for climate legislation on Capitol Hill, he seemed to want to stand back and let the folks in Congress lead the way and didn't really provide a lot of, a lot of leadership on that. Now, the only way he moves forward and really doubles down and tries to do something big is if he brings um, Republicans along in the effort. And if the president's not out there using the bully pulpit to rally support, odds are politicians are not going to have the courage to step out and address the issue. Dan Lashoff? Well, I think the president certainly recognizes that action on climate change is one of the big unfinished items uh, on his agenda from the first term and that he'll uh, try to move that forward. And, and I agree with Dave that he needs to lead on this issue. I don't expect that he's going to be able to get a lot of bipartisan consensus in the Congress. I think he can develop a consensus among a majority of Democrats and Republicans in the public who want to see action. He needs to do more to lead and bring people together around steps that he has the authority to take. 
to reduce carbon pollution on the one hand and to better prepare the country to deal with the consequences of climate change, things like Hurricane Sandy on the other. And uh, I, I think he can, and uh, I, uh, I'm optimistic that he will. Uh, let me add, though, that the president needs to be out front and leading and trying to convince uh, average Americans, and he needs to do that not sort of like Al Gore does, sort of trying to own the issue himself. He needs to have partners, bipartisan partners, that also advance that cause so that um, uh, the message reaches Americans of all political stripes. And, you, you know, you've got to We've got to all move together forward on this if we're going to expect folks in Congress to uh, wake up and, uh, and decide they need to do something. Dave Jenkins is Vice President for Government and Political Affairs for Conserve America. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. And Dan Lashoff is Director of the Climate and Clean Air Program of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks so much, Dan. And thanks, Steve. Just ahead, finding smart ways to adapt to the new realities of superstorms like Sandy. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The superstorm called Sandy was a wake-up call in the U.S., laying bare the vulnerabilities of our built environment in the face of dangerous new realities of climate disruption. Rising sea levels and severe storm surges target coastal communities, and many towns and cities are inadequately protected. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? It's the kind of problem that engages thinkers like Dr. Elliot Sklar. He directs the Center for Sustainable Urban Development at Columbia University's Earth Institute and joins us by Skype. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. So how surprised were you by that damage that was caused by Hurricane Sandy? Well, I was surprised and I wasn't surprised. I obviously was surprised the timing of it and knowing what the actual extent of the damage was. But as an economist and an urban planner who deals with sustainable cities, the notion that this was going to happen was not something that came out of the blue to me. So in that sense, it was kind of one of those moments when, you know, well, we told you so. But I didn't say that because, you know, it, it's really a serious problem for lots of people. A lot of the efforts at climate change legislation in this country, really around the world, have been aimed at reducing emissions. What should we be doing now to get a coherent policy on adaptation? That's a very important point. While we do have to mitigate, even if we were to end all greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, there still would be a major problem going forward because of all the carbon that's accumulated in the atmosphere already. The real question is, what are we going to do to adapt to the new realities of the new climate that we face? Some of the answers that you're hearing probably are technical ones. Protection against storm surges for coastal communities is one of the things you hear. Hardening infrastructure against flooding conditions. The issue that we face is how are we going to begin to accomplish the kinds of changes that we need to put in place? As you know, if you followed the last few years, the debates in Congress about cap and trade and uh, mitigation doesn't sell very well. But I do believe that adaptation is going to sell a lot better. One of the things that Sandy did was create a democratic crisis. By a democratic crisis, I don't mean a political crisis. I mean uh, people rich and poor all were affected by this storm. In the past, a lot of uh, events that 
created a lot of dislocation were felt disproportionately by poor people. For example, Katrina was largely a story of the, the Ninth Ward and the way poor people fared in that storm. In this particular storm, people living in lower Manhattan, some of the most affluent people in the country, perhaps in the world, were walking around with flashlights didn't have power, didn't have heat, uh, depending upon the kinds of systems that they had. This is very much like what happened in the 19th century when we were dealing with things like cholera epidemics. Before we understood what germs were, it was became very clear that the only protection for the rich was going to be the protection of everybody else. And when you get that kind of po political cohesiveness, we really do have a chance to make something change. What about things like uh, marshes and rain gardens on roofs in, in the city, uh, permeable concrete to help deal with the runoff? How much should we be thinking about those? All those are good ideas. Those are things we teach. Those are things we preach. Green roofs, painting roofs white to better reflect heat, forms of you know more permeable concrete in parking lots. All those are things that we talk about, but we're going to have to go a lot further. It's technical, but it's also social. It's got to be social policy. It's got to be land use policy. It's going to have to be infrastructure policy. And it really is going to have to be the use of government incentives. We have to begin to incentivize people to live in walkable and bikeable communities. Right now, all the incentives that we have are to build more highways and move people out. And that isn't just an American problem. I'm confronting the same problem on doing planning in, in African cities, in Nairobi right now. This really is going to take developing a broad-based understanding about what these issues are. And I think that we have an opening for this dialogue right now. It really is a question of bringing the society together. And, and I think things like the, the common thread of something like this storm gives us a shot at it. What about the question of rebuilding infrastructure that has been damaged by this storm? And how many of the places that have been damaged should we even think about rebuilding? That's one of those questions I teach my graduate students to begin answering by saying, well, it depends. You have to really look critically at the infrastructure in, in different places and begin to think about what can be rebuilt where. That's one of those questions I think we're going to be asking, and I think we have to ask, but it's not, it's not a question that, um, that you just say in, in general sense, well, we're going to have to get rid of things. We're going to have to learn how to adapt things more. With rising sea levels and uh, storm surges increasing, how do you incentivize uh, living away from the water? you got to break that into two parts. Certainly, um, for higher income groups, the notion of waterfront living has been something that's been very attractive. It is attractive to live by the water, can, you know, and to sit by the water can be very calming and soothing. But one of the things we have to do is we have to talk about um, insurance and saying that if you want to live there, you have to pay for it. You have to bear the risk if that's your choice. But I would be cautious about that because there are a lot of people on Staten Island who are living by the water who are not affluent people. There's a lot of working class and poor communities that are in those places because they were low-lying places. The Ninth Ward in New Orleans was not a Tony neighborhood. So those people do not need to be lectured to and told um, that they've made bad choices. They made the best choice given the options that were open to them. And what we have to do, we have to talk about this not just an issue of environmental policy, but it's an issue of social policy as well. We have to really talk about how we create opportunities for housing that works in other places. We have to really begin to pull this apart in a much more communal and democratic way. Elliot Sklar, what's the silver lining to all of this? You know, uh, where you stand 
has a lot to do with where you sit, I guess. For people who have been badly wiped out, I don't think they see any silver lining. For people who have lost their homes, who are, who are sleeping on, on cots and shelters right now, who were living comfortable lives until just a week ago, I'm not sure they see a silver lining. For those of us who do urban sustainability, what we see is, is a chance to begin to make people understand why we're so concerned about climate change, why we have been sounding the alarms that we've been sounding, why, why we have been trying to get the attention of politicians. So if that's a silver lining, we got it. Elliot Sklar is director of the Center for Sustainable Urban Development at Columbia's Earth Institute. Professor, thanks so much for taking this time. My pleasure. Well, assaulted by an unprecedented storm surge, many tunnels connecting New York to outer boroughs flooded and choked the city's public transportation network. And with power out in much of the region, gasoline was hard to find. But hey, it's New York, so people found ways to get from here to there. And for an unprecedented number, the answer was the bicycle. Here's the director of bicycle advocacy at Transportation Alternatives in New York, Caroline Sampanaro. What we saw was a breakdown in the public transit system and our subway system, which is really our backbone. What we also saw was New Yorkers taking to bicycles um, in huge numbers. So, for example, on the East River bridges, bicycle volumes increased from 10,000 to 30,000 cyclists last week, which is a huge increase. How might increasing the capacity for bikes in a city like New York help make it more resilient? I mean, I think what we have in New York City is a perfect city for bicycling. When you're talking about transferring trips from cars to bicycle, a lot of our trips in New York City, the vast majority are under five miles, which is a very bikeable distance. At the crux of actually changing behavior is making bicycling easier, safer, more feasible for these trips. During a storm when you know our underground got flooded out, the streets become really important and how we use our streets becomes really important. So whether that's creating HOV lanes or dedicating lanes to rapid bus service or making sure that it's safe to bicycle through dedicated space. These are all really important steps to take to cut emissions and create effective ways to get big groups of people around. So what has New York done so far to make itself more bike-friendly? I notice in Midtown, especially on the, uh, the east side, not too much in the way of bike lanes. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen over the last five years in particular is a build out of the bike network. So we've seen around 300 miles of bike lanes added. We're going to have the largest bike share program in North America next year and starting in the spring. I think, you know, the missing middle is really continuing to build out the grid of protected bike lanes that will encourage people that are scared to ride on city streets with cars to encourage them to get on their bike and make that two-mile, three-mile trip on their bike. So in New York, here are the obstacles. You've got potholes, no really safe place to park the bike at the other end. Actually, it's kind of tough to get the bike all the way up to a fourth or fifth floor walk-up. What can the city do to make it friendlier to people who want a bike? I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, lack of secure bike parking is a deterrent for most people to choose biking daily. And I think Bike share will solve some of that in terms of, you know, you don't have to actually solve the parking problem, but Transportation Alternatives has worked hard to make commercial bike access easier. So there's a law in the city that now requires commercial buildings to provide access to bicycles. There also needs to be some innovations. Maybe it's a secure bike parking at transit or additional accommodations because the bike parking piece is huge, as you point out. 
What effect do you think Sandy could have on bicycling in the long term? I mean, is this possibly a silver lining of Sandy to have more awareness about bikes and that more should be done? There's definitely the possibility of that. I think the large increase in the number of cyclists, those individual cyclists, who knows, you know, hopefully they're going to be stuck on the convenience and practicality and affordability of riding a bike to work. That's our hope at Transportation Alternatives. I think for the city and its entire transportation network, a storm like this is a wake-up call to really think in a forward-thinking way about how we can make our transit network last through storms, but also be sustainable, be working against climate change as opposed to contributing to it. That means, you know, thinking about how our surface public transportation can be part of the solution during the aftermath of a storm like this. Caroline Sampanaro is a bicycle advocate for transportation alternatives in New York City. Thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you. And as Caroline Sampanaro was saying, a bicycle was one of the few reliable ways to get around in the aftermath of Sandy. But New Yorkers would have found it much more convenient if the Big Apple had already joined the dozens of cities worldwide with a bike-sharing program. Boston, where Living on Earth is based, has one, and Bobby Bascom went to check it out. In Boston, there are a few basic ways to get around the city. You can walk or drive. You can take the subway. The destination of this train is Braintree. No smoking, please. Or you can take the Hubway, Boston's public bike system. Hey, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing well. It's a sunny fall day at the North Station TD Garden Center. This is where the Celtics play basketball and where thousands of commuters arrive in Boston from the North Shore. Like a lot of people, Peter Dolan uses the Hubway for the last mile of his commute. It's such a nice day, and uh, it's about a 15-minute ride to my office from here, so I think I ought to take advantage of it before they put them away for the winter. I think it's a nice, relaxing way to start the morning. The Hubway is a system of over 1,000 sturdy bikes at 108 docking stations across Boston and the adjoining cities of Somerville, Cambridge, and Brookline. For $85 a year, Hubway users get a key fob about the size and shape of a flash drive. Rochelle Borgo from Salem explains how it works. You just like insert it into the little um, opening at any dock. It turns green if the bike is available. It turns red if the bike is in need of repairs. And it's unlimited 30-minute rides throughout the city. As a commuter, I just, you know, I can get anywhere I need to go under that 30 minutes. I've only had to pay for a ride two or three times. Actually, there was one time I got charged because there were no docks available here. And when there are no docks available, you kind of just either have to wait or ride to another station. For Borgo, riding a bike is just more pleasant than taking the subway. The idea of being underground for 20 minutes when it's still sunny and nice and not pouring and not snowing is just moderately depressing. And this is such a great liberating option. It's just like another way to um, feel like a 10-year-old again as well. You just get to like play and be free and be in the fresh air, so I love it. It's awesome. Jim from Beverly says a hubway bike is the fastest way for him to get around the city. My office is um, down by South Station. It's at least a 15-minute walk, and the hubway's a six-minute ride. Is there a train that goes down there, too? Oh, God, no. You have to make um, the green line to the red line or the red, uh, the you know, orange line. It's, it's all sorts of connections. It's a pain in the ass. I catch so many trains going home now, trains I used to miss when I was walking. It's incredible. Get home to the wife and family so much faster. The North Station commuters were so enthusiastic, I had to try it for myself. For $5, a day user gets a five-digit code and can use the bikes for 30 minutes at a time for 24 hours. The Hubway bikes have three gears and a big fat seat. Your grandmother could ride one of these and be comfortable. 
As I zipped by cars stuck in traffic, I thought, suckers, you could be riding a bike. I rode over to Boston Common and the State House, and then to the Boston Public Library at Copley Square, then turned the bike in before I got charged for going over 30 minutes. Then I headed over to Boston City Hall to meet Christopher Carter, interim director of Boston Bikes and advisor to the mayor. There's definitely an environmental component of it where we're looking at how do we, you know, improve the air quality uh, and reduce carbon emissions. There's also, uh, you know, a healthy lifestyle component that we're looking at too. Some of the funding is targeted around anti-obesity. You know, if you can get to work or get to school by pedaling a bicycle, that's certainly one way of tackling the epidemic we have in this country. It's hard to say how much weight has been lost or carbon reduced by the more than 600,000 hubway trips taken so far. What is certain is the price. The initial investment for the hubway was roughly $6 million. It's in the red right now, but Carter expects it will start turning a profit within three years. Startup funding came from state and federal grants, as well as corporate sponsors led by the athletic shoe company New Balance, which gave $600,000. Matthew LeBreton is Director of Public Affairs for New Balance Athletic Shoe Company. We really believe in, as a company, that getting people moving, no matter how they do it, whether it's walking up a flight of stairs or riding a bike, is really important to our overall health and to, the, to our city's health. Alternative modes of transportation uh, is a great thing, and we're proud to sponsor that and support it. In the last five years, Boston has added roughly 58 miles of bike lanes. There are plans to extend the bike share program to other neighborhoods, such as Jamaica Plain and Roxbury. So far this year in Boston, there have been 450 accidents involving cars and bikes, including three fatalities. No Hubble users were killed, and only two were involved in accidents that required EMS services. One criticism leveled at Hubway is that it doesn't provide helmets. But Christopher Carter says they're working on it. We're working with a group out of MIT that's formed a company to do helmet vending machines. We are hopefully going to be able to pilot um, one of those vending machines uh, next spring. Another problem is ensuring that bikes are always available when and where commuters need them. That's where Miles Dakin comes in. That's my usual job, is to go around and make sure that all the bikes are where they need to be. Often I'm on the morning shift, so like this morning it's mainly making sure that people going on their morning commute have bikes where they, they need them and places to put them where they're headed. Miles works for Alta Bike Share, the contractor that administers the program and maintains the bikes. The Hubway dock at North Station empties out two or three times during the morning rush hour, so he's busy driving vans full of bikes to replenish the racks. Mackenzie Stunkard is fleet coordinator or dispatcher for the Hubway. She sits in front of a computer with a map of the city. This is a live map of the system, so it has up-to-date view of all the bikes, and then I also have GPS locations of all the drivers. So each little green dot on the map here represents the station? Correct, and um, it's shaded gray where there are available docks, and it's shaded green where there are available bikes. Hubway users have access to the same information on the website. And there's a smartphone app so riders can see in real time where there are bikes and docking stations available. It's that kind of technology that's allowed bike share programs to really take off. Scott Mullen is general manager of the Hubway. Bike sharing in general really got a, a boost in 06. Uh, it's called Bike Sharing 3.0, which is credit card transactions, a really secure, robust locking system, and that was really Valib in Paris. 
And I think that to this day, they have about 20,000 bicycles. Um, it's really a mode whose time has come. Mullen says bikes are a critical component for emergency management that will help make the transportation system more resilient. Most of the hubway racks are solar-powered, so bikes can still be released and returned if the electricity grid goes down. After the blackout that happened uh, a few years ago that literally crippled most of the East Coast and New York City was, was in the dark, most of my friends were like, well, it didn't, didn't phase me at all. I just rode my bike like I normally do, just had more pedestrians to watch out for. There are currently about 25 bike share programs in the U.S. and nearly 200 worldwide, from China to Germany to Argentina. Mullen says that that number is only going to go up. Bike sharing is a rocket ship. Every smart city is looking at it. If you think about transit investment, it's the best bang for the buck by a factor of 100. What's the most efficient way to move the most amount of people? And then if you think about the public health aspects, I don't know of many other modes that are as much of a magic bullet as cycling is. The Hubway bikes will be out on the streets here in Boston until the end of November. Then they'll go back to the warehouse for a thorough tune-up and winter storage. The 10,000 commuters at North Station and around the city will just have to wait for the spring thaw in March to get back on their bikes. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. Coming up, a new novel from Barbara Kingsolver starts with a mystery, shrouded in beauty and the lure of betrayal. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Of all the threats to our natural world, humans and our insatiable development may be the most deadly. That's what sound recordist and photographer Garrett Vinn of the Cornell Lab found on a visit to Russia's far north. That's the song of one of the rarest birds on Earth, the spoon-billed sandpiper. I recorded it in the far northeast of Russia, where as few as 100 remaining pairs of this mysterious little sandpiper with a remarkable spoon-shaped beak go to breed each summer. The spoon-billed sandpiper depends on key coastal wetlands to fuel its long-distance migration to its wintering areas. And for many species, migrating south on the flyway from eastern Russia and Alaska to southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand, the Yellow Sea is Grand Central Station for birds. They all stop there to refuel and continue their journeys. But the Yellow Sea is not what it used to be. Massive projects in China and South Korea for agriculture, aquaculture, and industry have eliminated more than half of the intertidal areas that all of these migrants depend on. And for many, their populations are rapidly falling. The spoon-billed sandpiper may soon be extinct. 
I came to know a handful of these beautiful birds in the velvety hills of Siberia as they sang, courted, and eventually settled down to nest. I sat on the tundra with a spoon-billed sandpiper as its eggs were hatching and watched as the downy, doe-eyed chicks took their first feeble steps into our rapidly changing world. Garrett Finn works as a natural history sound recordist at Cornell. There are pictures of endangered spoon-billed sandpipers at our website, LOE.org. Award-winning author Barbara Kingsolver has written more than a dozen books, including The Bean Trees, The Poisonwood Bible, and Prodigal Summer. We talked to her back in 2007 about Animal Vegetable Miracle, the true story of moving her family from Arizona to Virginia and pledging to eat only locally grown food for a year. Well, Barbara Kingsolver's newest novel, Flight Behavior, is also set in Appalachia in Tennessee. Barbara, thanks for coming to tell us about it. Thanks. It's great to be back here. Well, first off, how are things on the farm? I understand you're still living in, uh, what is it, western Virginia and eating only what you and your neighbors uh, can grow? Southwestern Virginia, right. We're in Regionally, we're in southern Appalachia. There are a lot of farms around us. And so, um, yes, we have really no trouble at all surviving very well on locally produced food. And so, you, what, you raise sheep, you have... Uh... We raise sheep for both wool and meat. And we have a large vegetable garden, but so do almost all the people around us. Now, I have to say that your latest book, Flight Behavior, starts out, well, it's kind of mysterious at the beginning. Your protagonist, Della Robia, is headed off into the woods. Uh, it's a back lot on her Tennessee sheep farm, and she's on her way to meet a man and, and have an affair. Uh, she's going to give up her kids. She's going to give up all that farm life. But then she sees something that makes her change her mind. Can you tell us about that? Yes. She's marching up this mountain to, um, she's at the end of her rope. She doesn't really want to wreck her life, but she has to wreck her life. She's stopped along the way by the sight of what looks to her like a valley of trees on fire. These trees are all glowing orange. And she becomes convinced that it's a miracle. It's like her burning bush. And she turns around and runs back down the hill, picks up her kids and decides to straighten out her life. Well, soon enough, she finds it's not a miracle. It's a freakish biological event caused most likely by climate change. And I really hate to give away what it is, but it is. It's, <laughs> but So we'll just okay. have a warning here. Turn the radio down for a few minutes here and come back uh, if you want to be surprised. Alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Otherwise, okay. go ahead. Tell us what uh, it's. An immense congregation of monarch butterflies. Normally, these butterflies congregate, aggregate for the winter in uh, the mountains, high mountains of central Mexico. In this case, I imagined a circumstance in which their migratory system is so disrupted that they would shift their aggregation to very similar mountains in southern Appalachia. What would happen if this happened is that it would be touch and go because this is a much colder winter in southern Appalachia, and most likely in the course of this winter, the whole species is going to freeze to death. So, of course, you, Barbara Kingsolver, you train deeply in science. I have uh, a Bachelor of Science, a Master's in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and actually I was in a Ph.D. program. I got, I did everything but finished the dissertation. I defected at the last minute when I sort of realized that 
This dissertation, if I finished it, would reach probably and impress maybe 11 or 12 people in the world. And I had this idea I could shoot for an even bigger audience than that. In this novel, uh, Flight Behavior, you spend a lot of time on science. It, it may be a fiction that the monarchs are taking up residence, uh, winter residency in, in Tennessee. But uh, after that, all the science that you have in there, to my read, is, is accurate. Um, Thank you. Tell me more, actually, about the science of these monarch butterflies and why you use this as a teaching tool for Della Robbia and the people around her. I just had this vision of the monarchs roosting in an Appalachian hollow. That's sort of the magic. Writing a novel is 99% labor and 1% magic. But I recognized immediately it would be a really great prime mover for a novel because there is so much truth. Already there are plenty of well-documented circumstances in which animals that are less adaptable than we are are getting shifted in ways that are both incongruous and fatal to them. At one point, Delarobia in this novel is trying to explain what she has learned because she comes to be uh, actually in the employ as a sort of low-level lab tech for the scientist that comes in to study this. So she's learning all this stuff and she's trying to translate it into terms that her friends and her poor husband, Cobb, who's kind of a dim bulb, he's really sweet, but not very bright. She's trying to explain it, and she says, it's like they're directed by cues that they can't change. They have to follow the signs. So she says, it's like if you followed the signs to the grocery store every week, and you went to the food king, and then one week, you followed the same signs exactly the same way, and you ended up at the auto parts store. What would you eat? The science around these monarch butterflies is really fascinating, that they make these generational migrations, for instance. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. more about that? It's something to knock your socks off. The monarch that is in your yard in the fall, maybe in Connecticut or Maine or Minnesota, that monarch that is about to turn around and head for Mexico has never been in Mexico. Its parents were never in Mexico So if you picture this as a big circle, the monarchs that spend the winter in Mexico on those high, cool mountains suddenly wake up in March. They go crazy in this mating frenzy. The females head for dear life towards Texas, towards the first unfurling milkweed plants in what's called the Spring Range across southern Texas. They get there just in time to lay eggs and die. Then the next generation hatches, eats those milkweed leaves, flies a little farther north to where the next sort of where spring is coming and milkweeds are coming out in uh, sort of across the southern tier of the United States. They die. Those eggs hatch into butterflies that fly even farther north, all the way up into Canada. They die, and their offspring go back to Mexico. How does a brain the size of a pinhead, tell them how to get someplace they've never been. Year after year, century after century, they've been doing this for thousands of years. And now suddenly it is getting disrupted. Not precisely as I've portrayed it in this novel, but that is a potentially real scenario. I actually tracked down, I did a lot of research on monarchs, obviously, and I tracked down the world's foremost experts, notably Dr. Lincoln Brower, And I laid this scenario on him, and I was afraid he would laugh me out of the laboratory. But no, he said, I said, is this at least 
plausible? And he said, yes, it is. And let's talk about why and how that could be true. And is that when you walked out of his lab feeling really sad? Yes and no. I knew when I entered this novel how serious this is, how far along this scary road we have gone. There's a moment in the novel when Ovid is trying to explain to the reporter how bad things are. He says, we are perched at the top of Niagara Falls. We can't just take a leisurely swim back upstream when we get over our denial. Does this strike you, he asks, as a good time to be debating the existence of the falls? I know where we are. I've been following this a long time. I'm a scientist. You know, I believe science. I guess it makes me feel a little better to know I'm talking about it. I'm not in denial. I'm doing the best I can to encourage a conversation and maybe illuminate some of the reasons why we're failing to converse. That's the best I could hope for. So let's talk a little bit about your protagonist here, okay. Della Robia. She got into this marriage that she was going to throw away because, uh, well, it was a shotgun wedding, we, we would say. Right. right? She's, she, whatever big ideas she might have had about her life in high school, uh, she gave up when she got pregnant and uh, married at 17. So she's very constrained by her circumstances. So this event brings Della Robia for the first time in contact with journalists from the outside world, with tourists, with scientists, and and really with science, with a scientific way of evaluating what she sees. Now, there's a great passage in your book that I think really exemplifies the uh, different camps that people fall into when it comes to believing in climate change. It starts on page uh, 320. Delarobia is talking to, uh, to Ovid, the butterfly scientist. Could you read that for us, please? Sure. He says, science doesn't tell us what we should do. It only tells us what is. And Delarobia responds, that must be why people don't like it. Ovid seems startled. They don't like science? I'm sorry, she says. I'm probably speaking out of turn here. You've explained to me how big this is, the climate thing, that it's taking out stuff we're counting on, but other people say just forget it. My husband, guys on the radio, they say it's not proven. Ovid says, What we're discussing is clear and present, Delarobia. Scientists agree on that. These men on the radio, I assume, are non-scientists. Why would people buy snake oil when they want medicine? That's what I'm trying to tell you. You guys aren't popular. Maybe your medicine's too bitter, or you're not selling to us. Maybe you're writing us off, thinking we won't get it. Ovid nodded slowly. We were not always unpopular, scientists. Fifteen years ago, people knew about global warming, at least in a general way, you know, he says. In surveys, they would all answer, yes, it exists. It's a problem. Conservatives or liberals, exactly the same. Now there is a divide. Well, yeah, Delarobia says, people sort themselves out. Like kids in a family, you know? They have to stake out their different territories. The teacher's pet or the rascal. I'd say the teams get picked, and then the beliefs get handed around. Team Camo, we get the right to bear arms, and John Deere, and the canning jars, and tough love, and taking care of our own. The other side wears, I don't know what, something expensive. They get recycling and population control and lattes and as many second chances as anybody wants. 
Dr. Byron looked stupefied. Velarobia as a character I find just fascinating. People who would like to sell a lot of books in America typically don't write about really poor people. And Delarobia is a pretty close to the bottom. I mean, she's uh, struggling uh, to even buy her kids uh, presents for Christmas in a dollar store. You're right. Poverty is an important part of the grounding of this novel. And this is the culture I wanted to describe and then move you into a conversation with yourself about environmentalism. And I think the environmental movement in this country and in the world may often be failing to take into account class. Indeed, because you have this scene a bit later. She's with an activist who's come to her her farm. He's handing out leaflets, and he's trying to get people to sign a pledge to reduce her carbon footprint. But it turns out she's doing just about everything that's on her list. It's completely irrelevant to her life. You know, he goes down this checklist. It starts with, you know, take your own silverware when you dine out. And she says, I haven't been to a restaurant in over two years. And that was, you know, restaurant being the Dairy Queen or something. He says, "Okay, well, eat less red meat. And she sort of wishes she could eat red meat. And he says, turn down the thermostat. And she's trying to keep the electricity on in her house. It's been shot off several times already during this novel because she couldn't pay the bills. This is a moment when she is beginning to get that as as humans on the earth, we've passed some kind of point where we're, we're going to have to start to rein ourselves in, rein in our consumption. And she's seeing that she never got there in the first place. This is what a lot of people on planet Earth are being asked to do, rein themselves in when they never quite got there in the first place. Well, I guess we don't want to give away the ending here. Um, we don't. We can't say whether the butterflies might survive this Tennessee winter or... or we cannot. Delrobia we cannot. ...would want to stay on the farm. So instead, I, I think I need to ask you, Barbara Kingsolver, what do you do next? Uh, can we expect more works on the environment? climate change? I think you can. I think you can expect that I will always write about things that seem to matter to me and to matter to my readers, because a novel is an audacious act. I'm asking you, okay, set aside your life for, let's say, eight or ten hours and listen to me. I come from a culture of modesty. You know, we Southerners don't say, sit down and listen to me. We say, what do you think of this? I promise you, I'm not going to ask you to give yourself over to a whole novel unless it's going to rattle at the cage of humans in the world a little bit. And so that's what you can expect of me. Barbara Kingsolver's latest book is entitled Flight Behavior. Thank you so much for taking this time today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, and Gabriella Romano all had a hand in making our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. 
Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.